Hello and welcome. I am joined today by Derek Krushmawi and Susanna Black. We have decided to boot Matt Leanderson and to add <laughs> Susanna Black and to move it all over to my podcast. It's a hostile takeover and <laughs> not really, but still. This is an unusual discussion. We're going to be talking about Susanna Clark's recent novel, Piranesi, which is a fascinating book. If you have not read it, you might want to stop now because this is going to be a spoiler heavy episode in which we get into some of the meaning of the book, some of its influences, some of its philosophical themes. So to kick us off, I thought that Derek, who suggested this conversation, could um, say a bit about the fundamental setting of the book and some of the key plot points. So really quick, I, I think we have to establish the baseline. Is it Piranesi or is it Piranesi? Like I've, I, I just, uh, uh, I think it probably is Piranesi, but in my head, uneducated, un, you know, unlettered man that I was, I kept on going Piranesi. So I think it's somebody, Piranesi. Somebody in Piranesi. Yeah, my dad, so. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's Italian, right? Yeah, it's, it's the name of a, yeah. a printmaker. And my dad actually, when I was growing up, yes. um, he still has like a Piranesi print on his wall. And Piranesi did these like freakish, strange, elaborate, sinister, mostly sinister um, interiors, like architectural interiors. So we should probably- I looked this up. One. Yeah, we should like find one to include as the image of the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, Piranesi. I looked this up and I think he does, he did these, because he did a lot of kind of like, I don't, I don't think it's neoclassical. It's like pre-neoclassical or something like that. But um, some of them were these crazy uh, interiors of like prisons. Yeah. And, um, and also uh, like, you know, imagined classical settings, uh, massive buildings and all that. And that is, we, we should get an image of that, but that actually kind of sets up a little bit of the background uh, for the setting of the of the novel itself uh, that I didn't catch until I looked it up later uh, after I read the thing. Um, just again, if you are trying to jump in here uh, and, and you're like, I don't care about the spoilers, I will just tell you, this book is awesome. You should read it. Like if you don't plan on reading it, you should read it. I read it in like five hours last week on an afternoon. You should care about spoilers. <laughs> Stop listening. You should with this book. Stop right now. So I, well, I'm like, I'm just right now. We're we're warning. We're begging you, pleading with you. Yeah. Okay, but you've had your warning. Um. So Piranesi Pyrene opens, and it's it's conducted entirely in the form of uh, journal entries by the main author, uh, the 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 voice of the storyteller, Piranesi, who's known goes by Piranesi, and he begins to describe a, the world in which he lives, uh, which he refers to as the house. Now the house has many rooms, but they're not just rooms. They're these, it, it's, it's like a world that has cavernous vestibules that, uh, you know, extend for, for hundreds and thousands of feet or, I'm sorry, meters, uh, Alistair. Um, and you know there's you know 192 in one direction 200 whatever in another direction and it's not just that these 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 um 
these rooms extend uh, to the side, they have different levels and they, you know, there are, there are layers. So on the first, on the first level, these rooms are filled with uh, water, almost the ocean, uh, great lakes uh, filled with fish and, and all that. And then the second layer is kind of like where uh, Piranesi usually hangs out. And these are the, these are the, these are the, in a sense, habitable rooms. And then the upper, the upper level is, these are actually rooms that are filled with the clouds, right? They're that high up. So this house is not just a normal house. It's, 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 it's worldish. It's whole worldish. All the rooms, all the vestibules are filled with statues of all sorts of figures, um, fawns and uh, barbers and uh, animals. And they're just figures upon figures upon figures. Piranesi lives in this world and he begins talking about the world. And um, there's only one other person in the world that he knows of, which is just referred to as other, the other. And, uh, and they meet regularly. And he, it, it's just this fascinating thing where I, I, I'm setting it up and I realize I should be just expounding the plot a bit more. But basically, the, the story revolves around Piranesi coming to discover the truth about himself and the truth about the world that he's in. He only knows of 15 other people who have existed in the world, himself, the other, and like 13 dead folks that he's found their bones in the labyrinth of the world, of the house. Um, and I'm, I'm, it's hard, it's so hard to describe, but there's this, un the unfolding mystery is um, who is the other that he talks to as they, as they, they make observations about the world uh, who he himself is and where he actually is. What is the house? Um, I, you guys want to interject because I'm, I'm not actually getting us the full plot storyline. I'm just no. I'm like giving us a setup because it's so I hard mean, to describe. It, it, it's hard to describe because you only get the sequence of events. You only kind of understand what the sequence of events that led up to um, Piranesi sort of starting to narrate to you, starting to t tell his story. Um, towards the end like you it, it's a very mm -hmm. gradual unfolding of like what's happened in the last like five years or something like is that the kind of time frame mm -hmm. that it seems like? um and it turns out again just turn it off right now just go away everyone go away go read the book you haven't done that I'm going to carry on it turns out that they're all researchers from are they from Oxford like do we know what university they're from? I think, yeah, I think it's the Oxbridge Manchester world. Manchester. Um, right, okay. <laughs> so they're um, essentially, I don't, I can't remember what department they're in. They're like physicists or something like that, or. Uh, no, it, it's, it's like, it's like anthropology. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and kind of cultural anthropology, <clears throat> kind of, but weird hybridity of, of disciplines. Right. It's a very university-ish book, nerds. Right grad students and nerds love this kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like they're, um, they're a bunch of grad students. Like this is what it turns out. Every Basically everyone here is a professor or a grad student. And, and um, this is like what happens to you when you when you try to go for an advanced degree, you just end up like, <laughs> fish in a gigantic, you know, house that is a world. Um, so what's happened is there was this. There was this group of researchers who were, um, one of whom, was the kind of um, you know charismatic uh, academic 
sort of head of this project, uh, they're all very familiar academic types too. Like this, it's such a it's such a university book. Yeah. Um, so, so the guy Lawrence Arn Sales, he's a he's like a transgressive thinker. He's a visionary, poly poly uh, disciplinary thinker, right? And he, you just triggered my memory of this. Okay, Basically, he theorizes the existence of other worlds. And one of the worlds, in a sense, is the world where things go when they kind of go out of the world. So he, he's drawing on this, uh, this kind of like idea that the world used to be a certain way. And, and this is where we come into like the idea of enchantment and disenchantment a lot. But, but essentially, it's like almost like the... I want to say it's like the world of the form. It's like Plato's world of the forms of a sort. Uh, when they when they when they when they when they lose their place in our world, their functional place in our world, they don't just disappear. They go into another world and they, they appear in this world of the house. And Lawrence Arn Sales is this transgressive thinker who theorizes it and then tries to get there, and he gets there. And people end up there. They end up stuck there. And Piranesi is. Uh, we, you come to find out that he was a researcher who was, uh, he was a journalist who's studying transgressive thinkers, falls down this rabbit trail of thought and ends up getting um, stuck in this world. And he was brought there by one of the former disciples of Lawrence Arn Sales, uh, this guy named Ketterly, who's, he's known as the other. And he's kind of a malicious character, but he traps him in this world. And then Piranesi being in this world actually for so long he can't get out. He's all alone. He, 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 the effect the world has on him is he loses his, he, he loses his, his, um, his idea of himself. He doesn't know who he is anymore. Uh, he doesn't know his, his, his history. And he basically just comes to believe himself to have always existed in this world. Mm -hmm. And he takes, he, he's so, so the journal is initially like his journal of when you're reading it, his journal of like his, readings and understanding the world. He thinks of himself as a researcher alongside Ketterly because he has forgotten who he is. And so the mystery is him finding out who he is, who all these people are, going through old journal articles, old journal entries that he himself had written years earlier but had forgotten about and like thinking, oh, these are all these characters. These are all these people who were are a mystery to me, but like they were the people who in a sense brought me here. Uh, at least my study brought me here. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I cannot get over how, so at this point, I don't know. I feel like if we keep describing this book, we're just yeah, going to keep going on because it's so hard. To, yeah. it's, I think what people should already notice if they're familiar with his work is the influence of Lewis, C.S. Lewis upon this. Ketley, of course, is the surname of Uncle Andrew in The Magician's Nephew, which is perhaps the book above all others that is behind Piranesi. So if you look at um, the story of The Magician's Nephew, there are a couple of places within that that resemble or remind you of the house. There's the ruined world of Charn, um, where the Empress Jadis comes from, who becomes the White Witch. And then there's also the wood yeah. between the worlds, which is a realm of forgetfulness, which exists in this liminal space liminal place between various wor worlds and it's a place that is horrific to the Empress Jadis but it's a place into which others can sink and their consciousness kind of merges with the place they're they're forgetful and they feel at peace and at rest there but it's a place mm. of 
profound forgetfulness. So when you're reading the book, you will hear that influence throughout and some of the deeper themes of the book. So if you think about the curiosity that is um, seen in Diggory's actions in the Great Hall, where he rings the bell, um, mm. or the way in which Uncle Andrew expresses this higher vocation, this desire to exercise magic, the use of guinea pigs and trying to break through to other worlds, get power and control, and the way that that gives him license to treat other people in horrific ways. Um, these are themes that are explored in Piranesi, along with other themes from Lewis. So some of the things that came to my mind were um, the head in um, that hideous strength. Um, you might also think of the discarded <laughs> image yeah. in um, some of the ways that the medievals viewed the world and an attempt to recover that. And also the other inklings, most notably Barfield and his notion of original participation. Right. And I mean, the thing that most reminds me of the distinction that Lewis makes in, I, I don't even remember where I read it first, but throughout his work between Magia and Goetia, um, between, somebody tell me how to pronounce this, between magic and kind of um, wicked enchantment or wicked um, mechanical mm -hmm. attempts to control the world through you know, summoning demons and so on. Um, the, the heart of the book seems to me to be there, basically the world as we understand it has fallen apart into, um, into science and magic or into fact and meaning. And there, and we need to, and those two sides need to be put back together in some way. And, but there are kind of two different ways that are presented of putting those two things back together. Um, and those two different ways are represented by, um, by Piranesi and the other. And one is the way of the kind of mm. magician scientist who's kind of a Faust character um, who, you know, the other is attempting to find what he calls the great and secret knowledge. Is that, is, am I remembering that right? So, something like the, yeah, the, the great knowledge or something like that. Yeah. And so he's trying to, Ketterly is trying to find um, the great and secret knowledge. He's doing this in order to control other people, like explicitly he wants power. And in order to like, mm -hmm. and he's basically exploited Piranesi. He's, he's used him as a guinea pig to a certain degree. He's um, kind of hidden him away and is entirely capable of doing terrible things to other people. Um, so he's, he's sort of like a magician scientist. And then Piranesi himself is kind of, the, I was trying to think of what the contrast would be, and it would be something like a magus natural philosopher. So I know like the contrast between magician and magus is, is wrong, but like if you think of like a magus as a a practitioner of magic who is not trying to use it to control other people, who's not trying to exploit the natural world, um, but is in, instead kind of like in harmony with it. Um, and I, <laughs> it's really difficult not to see um, uh, Ketterly as basically Francis Bacon. I was going to say, he's like the, he's the bad caricature of, of Baconian 
like yeah. science as dominance, knowledge, power, knowledge, uh, or, or whatever, you know, as a, as a root of control. Yeah, that that's okay. how you got to go. Awesome. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Everyone gets one. Um, man, it's, really, <laughs> it's like more difficult to talk about this book than I thought that it would be because it's so interesting and it's so like as you're reading it, it's this experience of kind of these ideas kind of enter into you and you realize gradually like what what Susanna Clark is on about. And then you try to like put those ideas into words and it's almost like you are by putting the ideas, what we're doing now, by putting the ideas into words, you're anatomizing something that can't be fully anatomized. And, but I mean, at, at the very basic level, um, this is a book about what happens. So say things have, ha say there has been disenchantment. Um, where did the enchantment go? And, but the, the, the thing that's so difficult to convey is that it's not, about, it's not about magic. What the house is, what the house represents is not magic as we would understand it at all. Like there's no, um, you know, Pyrenees is not able to do, you know, there, there's nothing supernatural other than like the fact of the house. Um, but what it is, is everything in the house is charged with meaning and legibility. And Piranesi's relationship with the house as his world is a relationship of feeling loved by it and feeling like it's his job to read it and understand it and that it is legible. It's not just stuff like the, the, the fact that there, that there are these statues, these figures everywhere. Um, it's almost as though like they're like naturally occurring figures, but they're, but they're stories as well. And that kind of connection between a natural world that is not just matter, but that actually has meaning baked into it is I think um, mm -hmm. what the, the book does such a good job of evoking. I think understanding what the Very house easy. is, uh, is really such an important part of grasping what the book is about. Um, so there are a number of things that come to mind when you read the book. It can, you can compare the house, for instance, to the wood between the worlds or somewhere like Charn, but in a pos positive sense, it's a lost world um, that is not dead, but a sort of living world that has been abandoned. In other ways, it might remind you of Plato's cave, but it's not Plato's cave. It's, it's not, um, it, there is something it's a, that it's has like a where, closer it's relationship. It's like where the forms have gone. Yeah. Yes, but, but in a way it's not that either because the forms, mm -hmm. um, it's what's left behind when the shaped with the flowing out of the forms. So it's the hollow that the yeah. forms have left when they've, when they have departed from the world. So it's not actually the real world. It's not the forms. It's the absence that is left by the forms when they have departed. And so perhaps the thing that most came to my mind was the sort of Renaissance memory palace, but it's a palace of forgotten memory. It's a place where all these things that have been lost to the mind, have they've seeped away and they've left this hollow behind them. But the image is one in which you, so for me, it's like the memory palace that you might have, but there's no life to interpret it. Um, and so 
when you have um when you have Piranesi within it, he's trying to make sense of it. Mm. But it's not his mind that was created that created it. The other is trying to ransack it for some hidden knowledge that isn't there. Um, the knowledge created the place, but it's it's departed. And so it's a memory palace without any life to actually work out its meaning. So Piranesi engages in some sort of augury, thinking about the meaning of the statues that birds fly between, for instance, and trying to discern some hidden meaning in that. And then the other is trying to engage with it in a more scientific manner, with devices and measurements, but also with a certain sort of technologized magic. You might also think about the house as, as Derek already mentioned, it is a world. And so it includes the clouds above, they're part of the house, the sea in the basement and the lower floor. And then you have the ground floor where the human being can dwell and you have birds coming to that realm as well. So the, the arrival of the albat albatross is a key point within the book. It's mm -hmm. one of the things that gives him his system of numbering and dating, keeping track of time. And so the house as coterminous with the world, I think is really important. It presents the world itself as an inhabited place and a home. He is yeah. the beloved child of the house and the house is kind. It's full of meaning. It's charged with significance. If only you were communing with it enough and understood it on its own terms. Whereas the other can never understand it. He's trying to get to understand it in a way that it just is not it's going external. to deliver any meaning. It's, it's externalized and it refuses to, the other sort of refuses to be a part of the world. He's trying, he's holding himself apart from it and he doesn't perceive it as lovable. He doesn't particularly like it. Um, and I mean, as you were talking, Alistair, it, again, <laughs> there's so many sort of links, but one thing to sort of think about is that it, it's a, it's a picture of Eden in a very particular way. Um, the kind of the, the cosmos that's formed out of the chaos. And it's also a picture of the tabernacle, it almost seems to me. Um, and the weird, but so the one interesting thing which kind of gets at the very end of the book is that the other is alone. And, uh, sorry, um, Piranesi is alone. And the other is kind of like, not it turns out a friendly presence um so it almost seems as though there has to be something that happens there has to be a kind of like um reuniting of the world of the house with the you know our world so a, a re-interpenetration of meaning and matter in order for Piranesi to sort of re-enter society in a way or to to not be alone but it's not clear that that's so but he doesn't really perceive that need so so what's interesting here is is seeing this actually happening in Piranesi himself um you know there's so much going on here that, that you know Piranesi's approach to the world is one of yeah that that naturalist philosopher who is attuned to it who's become attuned to it it's deeply observational it's attentive mm -hmm. It, it, it pays attention to details. It looks at like the, the patterns of, of the birds flying and sees meaning in it. It's not just a random bird showing up. It's like, what, what, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean? Um, are they trying to speak to me? 
his his approach to it is is interesting in that regard and, it, and it's not the kind of externalized objectified um i need to like suck the the knowledge out of it to control um but what's interesting about that is that it's piranesi goes through a transformation himself uh you know he comes to find out that prior to being piranesi he was matthew rose Sorensen. he was a, a student. He was a journalist. He was a he was somebody who was working academically on this uh, figure, Lawrence Arn Arn Sale. Uh, can't remember how to say his name. Where is it? Arn Sales. Um, Arn Sales. Yes, he's got this project on transgressive thinkers and the way that they their relationship to um, reason, the relationship to uh, knowledge, and all that kind of thing. He himself is he's not necessarily like. Uh, when when Arn Sales comes to the world and he talks to him, uh, he looks at me like when, when, when I met you, and this is something that Pyrenees is not picking up at the time. He's like when I met you, you were you were basically you were a punk, but now now you you're quite nice. Like something has happened in the way Pyrenees himself approaches his subjects. He was a journalist who was observing people, trying to, I, I, as far as I understand, you know, capture them and subject them himself to, to write this book, to write these academic articles around Arn Sales. But as he becomes Piranesi, his approach to people shifts. His approach, I mean, so he attentively uh, thinks about um, like the bones of the dead people who are mm -hmm. in the house alongside him. Who were they? What was their story? And he cares for them and he moves them to safe places. Um, his approach to the world seems to shift and and you know when he's brought out of the world by uh was it Raphael the the, the cop yeah. um he he comes out of the world and he doesn't quite feel like Matthew Rose Sorensen uh, as he comes to remember who he was but he's not quite Piranesi anymore fully mm -hmm. or entirely either and you know towards the end you see that like he is becoming he has become um some union uh, or some reconciliation or an increasing reconciliation of Matthew Rose Sorensen and Piranesi, the, the, the one who was formed in a world without those, that kind of intrinsic meaning, the one who was kind of um, looking at people, researching, trying to pull them together for his own, like with almost a similar approach to, to power and knowledge uh, as Ketterly, who was reconciling that with the time, the person he became in the world uh, in, in the house. Mm -hmm. And that is almost like happening within himself, um, out now in our world. And so he's transformed. Uh, so he's not who he was in, in the pure world because in the, in, in, in the house, he lost himself. He lost his sense of time. So that, that wasn't fully himself. It was so like attuned to the house. Like his sense of identity went weird. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that, that, that I see that movement happening in Piranesi himself, and, or at least the attempt to, to have that movement happening within yeah. Piranesi himself and his own, I mean, his own development as a character. Yeah, and the other thing that I'm sort of reminded me of, <laughs> you guys are gonna roll your eyes. Um, so originally when he's studying um, these transgressive thinkers, he's not like, he's not really asking himself, are they right? He's just, he's like interested. Yeah like somebody who's like, I'm really into like Julian James and also um, 
who's that guy who did the uh, Robert Anton Wilson and like I'm just I'm into these guys I'm into people who are who have strange ideas about the way the world works but he wasn't asking himself like are they on to anything um what is reality yeah and and he but he got sucked into the reality of one of, of the idea of one of these transgressive thinkers and it I hate to do this but it reminded me of my experience of of sort of reading Strauss and reading um, reading Leo Strauss and, sort of <laughs> and the the experience of kind of Straussian um, approaches to political philosophy where you know the ordinary approach to political philosophy is you you study the history of political philosophy like you study what different you know philosophical thinkers have what their what their systems are um, what they believed what their you know you'll probably do something about what, what their time and place was. Um, you might try to understand them from the perspective of the events that were going on around them, but you don't actually ever like say, okay, <laughs> you know, was Plato right? Was, was Aristotle correct? Um, are they describing the world? And so his, his transition, Matthew Rose Sorensen's transition from being a kind of um, voyeuristic uh, journalist who's interested in what these strange academics think to someone who's fully um, fully living out one of the realities of their ideas is that's also fascinating to me. Yeah. I don't know. I want to interrupt Alistair, but go ahead. Oh. No, just that, that, that being coming subject to them. I think, I think I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you guys have to think about, you know, that the figure of Aaron Sales is extremely ambiguous, mm. right? Not even ambiguous. He's a bad, he's, he's, he's bad. Like he, he, he's callous. He mm. doesn't care about the subjects of his experiment. I mean, Ketterly is, is more malicious, but he's this transgressive thinker. He's transgressive in all sorts of ways, right? And, but he's right. Mm -hmm. And so kind of like wrestling with, you know, the, the, just wrestling with like his ambiguous morality, but nevertheless insight into the way the world works, at least in this world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I want to, I'd love to hear what you guys have to think about him as a figure in the book, like, uh, and, and how that relates to, to that. So. It's interesting the way that um, Piranesi refers to him as the prophet when he encounters him. Mm -hmm. um, there's a sense of, again, I think there's something about the way that words relate to reality um, that changes during the course of the book. So the idea of the prophet is a word that illuminates the world, that gives some sort of deeper meaning and significance and some sense of the charged reality of the world and one's path within it, as opposed to the word, words that can actually destroy your world that he's warned about by the other, that mm -hmm. if he reads the words that are, or hears the words of this other person who's entered his world, his world might be destroyed. He might be sent mad. And writing and words and speech are such an important part of the book. Yeah. And I think that may be one way into thinking about the character of the prophet or say on sales. Um, so the way that words 
disrupts something of his original participation to use Barfield's understanding. Um, he is at one with the house. He senses the house as a presence um, that interacts with him, that cares for him, that he's the beloved child of the house. And the moment that that is disrupted, he feels himself to be alone. The capital H that always used to be given for the halls now becomes a small H. There's a I sense in, in which the world has been demystified. There's mm -hmm. something of an absence and he is someone who's now alone in the world. He's lonely. And that is a result of a particular engagement with words, mm -hmm. among other things. Mm -hmm. The words that could not easily be erased. The words that um, he read in his book that gave him the memory that he had lacked as a result of his union with the house. The words that he himself had written to- Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Susanna, you're about to say something. Um, I mean, so one of there, there are so many different kinds of reading experiences and, and hearing experiences that this book reminded me of. One of them was actually um, so Lev Grossman, who's this uh, other kind of fantasist, other science fiction writer, um, wrote a a series of books called the Magicians Trilogy. And if this is about, um, if Piranesi is about meaning as magic, like what, what the magic is, is the, um, the meaning that's embedded in matter or the meaning that's embedded in reality. Um, then the Magicians Trilogy is, I would say something like goodness as magic, but you see it in the lack of goodness. So again, spoilers, uh, Although, man, I, I always, I can never tell whether I want to recommend these books or whether I want to like warn people away from them. Um, but there are a series of books where there is a like, it's, it's very Hogwartsy, it's very Harry Pottery. There is, there are the standard sort of apparatuses, apparati of, um, you know, a lot of uh, sort of college-based um, fantasy novels where there's this college of magic and you get, you know, if you are sort of have the potential to become a magician, you are taken away when you're, or you know, you're invited to study there. Um, and there are centaurs and there are spells and there are, you know, there are all kinds of different sort of, you know, I, creatures, um, but there's no actual, like no one's good. No one's like super bad either, but no one's particularly good. There's no battle between good and evil. There's no quest. Um, the teachers are kind of careerist. The magic is very mechanical. So like you can do magic, but there's not any reason to do magic. Um, and that trilogy like reveals by its absence, I would say that when, you know, when we're reading the Narnia books or, or even when we're reading Harry Potter, like the, the magic is like the goodness and the, the idea of a quest, the idea of um, there being something that's worth doing, and then the kind of friendship that grows up or relationship that grows up in the doing of it. And the idea that like you can, if you choose wrong, you're, you're choosing something that's morally wrong, um, not just disadvantageous or something, like that's intrinsic to the magic. Like the magic is not about the centaurs or the fawns or the the spells. 
and Piranesi, it's 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 not so much goodness, although the goodness is there as well, but it's just really focused on meaning as magic. Two thoughts there. One is that reminds me a lot of the other uh, other magic series that um, oh, why am I blanking on uh, Philip something not Philip Pullman. Uh, oh no, not Philip Patrick Rothfuss is um, the King Killer Chronicles. Oh my gosh, uh, the, the name Pullman. of the wind. The, so yeah, the name good. of the wind. The name of the wind is so good, but, but like, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the form of magic and the way it's attached to uh, naming and words and, and, and like the, the form mm -hmm. of magic is interesting here and it relates, it, again, because this is not a magical, this is actually not magic. Like this book is not about magic, um, but uh, it got me thinking about Susanna Clark's other book, <laughs> Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell we should have a separate conversation about, but <laughs> the, 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 even there, that, that book had an internal debate within it about the nature of mm -hmm. magic. Is it nature magic? Is it scientific? That same debate in a sense, you know, you've got, you've got strange as kind of like the, almost like a natural um, uh, kind of uh, savant of magic mm -hmm. who intuitively taps into things as far as I remember. Mm -hmm. And then, and then Mr. Norrell who wants to have this very like orderly British. science of thaumaturgy. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, properly English magic. And, yeah. and, mm -hmm. but who, 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 who eschews the old ways, looks down on, you know, the magic the of Raven the Raven King, King yeah. and invoking fairies and that sort of thing. That's, not, that's, that's all kind of like disorderly and not really good magic. It's wild and, and it's wild and it's natural in a way that, but natural in a like personal uh, way, not natural in a, in a way of that can be like harnessed, like the forces of, you know, gravity and so forth. But, but mm -hmm. um, the personal dimension of like invocation yeah. and, and contract and all that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the fight of, uh, around magic is I mean, there's still some of that that personal dimension of the way we relate to the world, the way that we relate to the depth dimension and the power contained within the world. Is it receptive? Is it personal? Or is it, um, is it almost impersonal? Is it a matter uh, subject to our instrumental subject yeah. to our control? That's a theme that is running throughout both of her both of her books, yeah. uh, and is also tied into the question of disenchantment. And yeah. of the disenchantment of the world as we instrumentalize our relationship to nature and to create well when it becomes nature instead of creation in a sense right. she I, uses I, a lot of that's something to think about i think she explicitly references owen barfield at one point um as one of the authors that was a transgressive thinker that people were in or a person that transgressive thinkers were interested in and his theory of original participation and a sense of oneness with the world relating to the world as if there were some intelligence or presence that were in the world that you could relate to and that you had some that it was present within you and that's something that for instance we talk about panic and panic is something that overtakes you, that comes upon you, that is a real thing out there in the world, um, almost. It's a force at the in the world that's also present within you and acts upon you. Mm -hmm. And he gives that as an example of the way that the ancient mind would have related to the world more generally, that there were mm -hmm. great um, godlike forces that you could experience their presence and impact upon you. 
and there's a sense of sacredness and communion and charged meaning. And then mm -hmm. even after that, there's a residual sense of meaning that the world is a scrutable, um, meaningful place, as you have, for instance, in the discarded image of Lewis. That's not quite the same thing as original participation, but it's something that has a remnant of the flavor of it. And so Barfield was very interested, for instance, in looking back at language and seeing the way that as you go further back in language, you see the connection of language, not just as putting tags on things in the world, as it were, but a sense of the mm -hmm. unity of the various realities in the world, mm -hmm. metaphor and direct reference coming together and this more poetic experience of reality. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to understand the world, one of the things you need to do is recover the sense of the etymologies in all our dead metaphors to mm -hmm. trace back the course of language and to go beyond the sort of hollowed out dry riverbed of language to see the, the water that once coursed through it, the sense of participation, the sense of unity between the self and the forces of the world. And one of the ways in which that course was diverted through science and the way that science engages with the world as something to be, as a source of resources to be wrested from it or an understanding to imprison it and its forces to be harnessed and used for our purpose, but without any sense of the sacredness and the personhood almost of the world. And so you see this even in the differences between the ways that Piranesi speaks of the house. The house is personal for him, whereas the, mm -hmm. the other speaks about the house in ways that lose any sense of its sacredness. It's there, it's the, the statues don't have meaning. They're just things covered with bird shit, as he speaks about it. The technological framework of thought that he brings to the house makes it impossible for him to see it in the way that Piranesi does. And so there's a sense in which the world that um, the other sees moves the world of Piranesi towards a sort of oblivion. Um, he can't perceive the world in that way. His eyes are dim to it, whereas Piranesi has this original participation. The struggle is then he's broken free from that. So um, you might think about Raphael who comes to deliver him. She's, I mean, you might think about the archangel, patron saint of travelers, the blind, and also in Islamic thought, the one who would blow the final trumpet leading to the resurrection. There's something of that character that she has that she's breaking him out of this world. And then the problem is how does he relate to that world afterwards? Can he return to the original participation? He can't, he's moved out of it. And so somehow he has to reconcile the scientific world of modernity and the world that he is in thoroughly invested in as Matthew Rose Sorensen, and then the world of Piranesi, which is the world of original participation and somehow move beyond that to an imaginative reunion. I was thinking about the work of E.A. Burt the metaphysical foundations of modern science, as he talks about this sort of sapping of meaning from the world. This is one quote from him. The features of the world now classed as secondary, unreal, ignoble, and regarded as dependent on the deceitfulness of sense are just those features which are most intense to man in all but his purely theoretic activity. And even in that, 
except where he confines himself strictly to the mathematical method. It was inevitable that in these circumstances, man should now appear to be outside of the real world. Man is hardly more than a bundle of secondary qualities. And so one of the ways in which he has to bring the world back together is to see the glory in things that have been sapped of their glory, that have been reduced just to their surfaces, and to see hidden behind that some sense of their participation in a glorious reality beyond themselves. And so that final participation, to use Barfield's, um, Barfield's language, comes just at the very end of the book, where in its final line, he recognizes the house um, in the world of um, the streets that he's walking through. And he also sees the way in which people that he meets have corresponding images within the house. There's one um, passage that comes to mind here. People were walking up and down on the path. An old man passed me. He looked sad and tired. He had broken veins on his cheeks and a bristly white beard. As he screwed up his eyes against the falling snow, I realized I knew him. He is depicted on the northern wall of the 48th Western Hall. He is shown as a king with a little model of a walled city in one hand, while the other hand he raises in blessing. I wanted to seize hold of him and say to him, in another world, you are a king, noble and good. I have seen it. But I hesitated a moment too long and he disappeared into the crowd. That's it. In, that coming after 200 pages, it's just, there's something. Like you, you read it and I can like feel my heart just, it's so good. One of the things that's interesting that, that you know, Taylor talks about the porosity of the self in, in, in part of what makes folk secular is the fact that we, we're not, we're not porous anymore. We're not open. Uh, we don't feel ourselves to be um, uh, subject or uh, penetrable by you know spiritual forces and that sort of thing where, where we have buffered selves and you know Ketterly is a buffered self uh in respect to the house you know he comes in he's he he, he takes precautions not to be subject to the house in such a way that it would impact his his mental and intellectual uh integrity so he doesn't lose his memory his sense of who he is in his in the normal world whereas um you know uh Piranesi is, is, a, is a fully porous self in that sense. He's lost himself to the house. Um, he, 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 he has, his buffer has gone down. Mm-hmm. It's been dampened almost entirely, which is why he loses himself in there. And so um, the coming of Raphael actually in, reintroduces his old buffer to some degree, but it's now, it's a, it's a far more porous one. Uh, as he re-enters the world, and this is where you kind of see the, the you know, even in that quote, there's that level of, of, of the, the, the buff, you know, the, 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 the old Piranesi who had no buffer would have just grabbed him. Oh, you're in the hall, blah, blah. Whereas the, 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 the buffer of being out in the world has, has started to reassert itself, but not fully. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something like even emotional about this in terms of thinking about the way we are, you know, Ketterly, the other, relates to the world and relates to others in the way Piranesi does, he becomes much more open and receptive emotionally and spiritually. And you, you think about like the, even the nature of magic in, in these, in these worlds or the nature of meaning, um, the ability to uh, be receptive in uh, is risky 
right? Mm -hmm. There's something risky about his relationship mm -hmm. to the house, to the world, to persons. Mm -hmm. uh, he can be taken advantage of. He can mm -hmm. be harmed in a lot of ways. He, but, mm -hmm. but he's also open to trust. He's also open to relate. Uh, Ketterly is, Ketterly is self-contained. Mm -hmm. Ketterly trust takes, you know, takes only his own counsel. Ketterly is uh, narcissistically, uh, he narcissistically relates to others and he's, he's self-enveloped and there's, there's a relationship there between, you know, his interpersonal relational mm -hmm. dynamic and then the relational dynamic between him and the house, him and the world. Yeah. Those are and caught up with each other. And the, what I was going to say in, 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 in the sense that he's like, he's closed off from reality and that makes him closed off from other people. And therefore, the only thing that he can serve is, is himself. And that mm -hmm. means that he can't actually perceive what's there, finally. I feel like I want to try to describe. So I haven't read a ton of Barfield, or I'm trying to think if I've, I've read, read any Barfield other than, other than like quotes. Um, <laughs> shush, what? But No, I haven't read that. That's me. I, I think I've read two quotes, or I just see yeah. references to them. <laughs> I just, I mean, I have uh the book the world's apart i think but and i've got i think anyway so i'm gonna but i'm gonna try to describe two things that i think would get at like so there are actually three things that i think would kind of like help people to understand at least my understanding of what barfield was getting at at least via my understanding of what susanna clark was doing so first is like so there are certain words that throughout you know, most languages that have gendered nouns take one gender rather than another. So um, Oranos and Shemayim are the, um, the Greek and Hebrew words for sky, um, and they're both male. And Gaia and, um, is it, gosh, Eretz? Am I thinking of the, of yeah. the Hebrew word right? Are, are both feminine mm -hmm. words um, for earth. And there's this weird thing that if you, you can probably do this, think of nouns, you can very frequently, you can guess whether they're, whether they have this kind of, um, for the most part, masculine or feminine character. And then like, go check, see whether you're right. So it, it's a kind of like reading, a masculine or feminine nature in in nouns, both in words and in the objects that, that for which they're referenced. And like you can kind of do this experiment with yourself, and you'll probably get it more than you know a um, a random degree a percentage of them correct. So that's like one way to kind of get into this to experience your way into this earlier um, earlier participation. The other is like. I don't know if you guys did this, but like, um, I can remember kind of not realizing that. So throughout the, the year, each year, I would have different kind of emotional flavors for, for different seasons, but I didn't perceive them as things in myself. I, I thought that they were like out there in the world. So like the Christmas feeling that I would get like in December. I didn't think that that was in me. I thought that that was in like in December <laughs> and, or, you know, the, yeah. the feeling of May, April and May, 
you don't feel like that's a subjective thing. You feel like, oh, that's, that's spring. Um, and I mean, I still feel that way, honestly. Um, I, I was gonna say, Susanna, yeah, don't yeah. lie. <laughs> I was a kid Look, I'm, last I'm Tuesday. <laughs> a lot of it is the openness to the world, producing a sort of awe and wonder and a corresponding response in the person. Um, I think of the first mm -hmm. chapter of Lewis's The Abolition of Man and the way he talks about the proper correspondence between uh, response in the human spirit and actual physical realities. And so if we do not have that corresponding response, it, there's something wrong with us. We've, um, we're not relating to reality properly. And what the example you give about language, I think, is a good one. Um, you may be thinking about the term Adama that you have in Genesis relating to Adam, where Adam is from, formed from the earth, and the earth is presented as his mother. Um, and you have that elsewhere in the poetry of scripture. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return there. Um, knit together in the lowest parts of the earth. The sense that the earth and the mother's womb belong together and there's a deep affinity to them with them. It's not just a sort of poetic imagination, it's something real. And if you understand yourself and the world and your mother's womb, you'll see that, that's something real in the world. And so the mother's womb and the earth, there is a continuity between them that is not just a product of the imagination. It is something out there. And you can feel it in this more original participation sense, or you can get at it in some form of final participation to use Barfield's approach. And I also think, for instance, of some of Heidegger's work along this line, the sense of particularly yeah. his later work, the fourfold or the way sky, earth, divinities and mortals join together, language as a house of being coming in having a sense of the movement of being and its disclosure and the way that the technological approach to the world has tried to wrest things from a reservoir of resources and as a result has prevented us from actually um, having a sense of being at home in the world and the way that even things like the temple or the bridge to use some of his illustrations can gather things together in the world. They're not just resting um, indiscriminate and fungible resources they're actually uniting a whole um a world of the earth the sky mortal beings and the gods um which has a flavor of animism to it mm -hmm. but an animism that is trying to recover that original participation through a poetic understanding for all of heidegger's deep problematic character there's something there <laughs> So Piranesi, the thing is Piranesi and Ketterly's different relationships to the world, uh, you know, you see that Piranesi, after a while, you know, there's this, there's this, uh, there's this, one of the funny things that keeps happening is Piranesi, like realizing, like, I don't know how, he, you know, Ketterly is always so well dressed, he describes his various suits, and he doesn't realize that Ketterly is popping in and out of like our world and, and, and the house. And he's always dressed immaculately. Uh, like he he brings sandwiches uh, that are prepared in a world. Like he, he doesn't have to at all be attuned to anything that's going on there, which is why partially why he's so uh, scared of it and he doesn't venture out into it. But Piranesi, like he's lost his shoes. He's you know he's got shells in his hair. He's learned to fish. He's learned to 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 kind of be attuned to like the cold and the heat and the 
and and all of it. Um, and he's closer to the house, like just actually naturally, physically, like he's subject to it in some ways that, whereas, you know, Ketterly has, Ketterly is in a sense invulnerable. We keep coming back to the porosity and the, and the bufferedness, but like Ketterly has utter control, almost utter control of his relation to the house because he can extract himself from it. Um, whereas Piranesi is, is, he is a child of the house. He lives within it. He dwells within it. It is, it is, it's the womb, the womb of the world is, is, is where he dwells in it. And it, you know, in a sense, it mothers him, um, kind of a harsh mother, uh, in a lot of ways when you see him describe the, the winters and the waves and all that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. it's his relationship is much more, uh, on that register. One, one thing I kind of want to pull on, which is interesting to think about is the feel theologically, um, the house is personal and the house is impersonal. This mm-hmm. is like a, this is a, this is like a pantheistic, panentheistic, um, kind of like participatory metaphysics, which is not the same as a theistic, uh, mm-hmm. participatory metaphysics, right? Our, you know, th- there is, there is something different in a universe where things are created mm-hmm. and God transcends it radically, even though he's radically imminent to it. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this was something that is interesting that I think along, along the lines of wanting to go straight back to um, just going back to that original unity, going back to, that kind of participation, um, it's not uh, it's not an unproblematic thing of, of of going back to the world. I think there's something there with Piranesi's losing himself yeah. in the world. Uh, I mean, this is maybe me just correlating. You know, the I, I guess I'm 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 curious what you guys think correlating that issue of transcendence and imminence, and and even Piranesi's yeah. own ability to distinguish himself. Uh, his continuity mm-hmm. through time, his own identity, uh, or losing himself to the house. Um, you, you almost think of, of you know, uh, a theology of God being lost within the world or yeah. actually distinct, distinctly creating the world as, a, as his creature that uh, reflects his glory, reflects his paternal care, but mm-hmm. is nevertheless not God. I don't know. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, this is... That was a jumble, but these are some of the bells that are, are, are being set off. And I'm curious if you guys want to put some of those bells in an order. So, so I have a couple of different ideas about this. One of them is that um, I recently saw a production in the before time. So not that recently, but like, a, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Um, I saw a production of Heracles, um, the, the Sophocles play that was put on by um, my friend, Caleb Simone, um, who's this, uh, He's getting, he's actually gotten now his doctorate in classics from Columbia. It was his, um, part of his, you know, doctoral program was doing this production. Um, he did, he's done a lot of research into Greek music and the music that would have gone along with, um, with, you know, with each play. He like found an Aulos player. There's like three Aulos players left in the world and he found one of them. Um, wow. And so, like 
I we could maybe like find a link to that production um, to drop in the show notes to this because both in the in the experience of watching the play and in the play itself in Sophocles' text. Um, so Lissa is the, I forget, she's sort of like the goddess of, or the emissary of the goddess um, who, you know, makes Heracles go mad and, and kill his family. Again, spoilers, sorry. Um, although if you didn't know that, I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, and... <laughs> So like there is this again as Alistair spoiler spoiler alert on Sophocles. <laughs> spoiler, look, it's really it's kind of like I think we really the, you know it's been it that season has been uh, released for a while now. Um, you can even go back and binge watch those. Um, yeah, so um, so Heracles gets taken over by this music, which is. Um, played by this emissary of the goddess that drives him mad. And like terrible, this is, this is not a happy story. It's, there's a reason that we call it a tragedy. Um, and there's this moment where Heracles is um, sort of saying, I can't basically, despite everything that we've just seen where the gods are literally messing with him. He, he says, I just can't believe that, that God would be petty or would, would be sort of like amoral. I can't remember what the, um, the words are, but like it's this moment of um, classical theism in the middle of this mythological story. And it's this moment where he experiences like the hope of good order in the world, um, which as someone who's been like thoroughly buffeted, like back and forth as a completely unbuffered self, you know, taken over by, you know, the madness and the music of the goddess. Um, it's like, it's as though he's, he's, he's hoping for the disenchanted world, but not fully disenchanted. He's hoping for the world that we live in as Christians, where it's not, where God is a God of order and a God of goodness. Um, but he's not hoping for like a world devoid of meaning. It's almost like th there's almost more meaning in a world where God can be counted on to be good. Um, but it's less of, it's, it's less pantheistic. It's less enchanted in, in a lot of ways. And Charles Taylor, um, I mean, my original, I tweeted after, right after I finished the book, I said, Charles Taylor, eat your heart out. Like this is a very Charles Taylor book. And Charles Taylor yep. in um, uh, A Secular Age talks about um, the disenchantment that Christianity kind of, like it's not, it's never totally clear whether Taylor is happy about this or not, um, but the disenchantment that Christianity brought to the pagan world, but it was not a complete disenchantment. So that's kind of a little bit of what I, I don't know if that's getting at anything that you were thinking about, Derek. I was reminded of um, oh, but it's, I mean, the work yeah. of the science fiction writer, Gene Wolfe. Latro and the Mist is particularly- Oh, I haven't read those. A lot but of the he other has ones though. Unreliable narrators, but this particular one is yes. a, an ancient character who's constantly forgetting. He's lost the ability to remember for periods of time um, as a result of a judgment by a goddess. 
and it explores many of the same themes of participation, the ancient mind and its experience of the world, and the attempt to try and hold things together with language. And that, I think, gets at something of the book in terms of the way that language and the word is so important in actually helping him to, first of all, make sense of the world, mm -hmm. to restore some um, reality to Matthew Rose Sorensen. And the word of the prophet is key there. It's um, mm -hmm. a world, a word from a sort of father type figure entering into the world of his original participation with his mother, the house. Mm -hmm. And it breaks that original unity in some sense. And it, mm -hmm. it seems to me that that's one of the things that is very important about the fact that God is our father. If God were our mother, we would have that sense of original participation of unity. God is the womb, has the womb in which we live and um, have our existence. And there's complete panentheistic um, unity. Whereas with God as our father, God stands over against the world in some sense. There's a material hiatus between mm -hmm. God and his creation. Mm -hmm. And so the world is a place where we can experience unity. The world, the earth is in some sense our mother, and we're not supposed to just relate to it as um, a depersonalized lot of stuff to be used. But on the other hand, God and his word um, move us into a symbolic realm where there is a break of that original participation with the reality of a world into which we're just sunk in a sort of naive innocence and forgetfulness. We actually can step outside of it. And the coming to language, I think, even for the human person, the individual, that process of coming to language is a movement beyond a, a realm of original participation of the earliest years of childhood where you're almost sunk in this realm of forgetfulness, of unity, and then you can step outside of it and you can stand over against it to some sense, to some extent. And that comes with the, the word in particular. And so, I think that's important of, for um, Piranesi. I was thinking of like Trinitarian, like not just Trinitarian, but Christological, almost the dialectic between wisdom and Torah. I mean, they're, they're, they're unified, but there's a, there's a distinction of like walking in God's world according to wisdom. Some of that's going to be like natural wisdom, you know, almost like I think of like the, 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 the proper, I don't know, proprioception of, that you get from your feet, uh, feedback, you know, uh, you know, it, just the way babies have pro a proper orientation to the world uh, just through your natural movement. But then, yes, the speech orienting you giving you categories mm -hmm. that are yes kind of abstracted from immediate experience but then orient your immediate experience uh and and help you actually see more clearly there's something about um an external word a torah mm -hmm. uh given legislated uh, delivered that is not immediately bound and caught up in kind of unmediated uninterpreted uh experience I mean, this uh, is, sense experience you know you, you have that mediation no no I just that, that you have that dialectic of like uh lady wisdom and logos and like mm -hmm. the, but th there's there's creation and redemption there is there is the world is charged and suffused because it has been created by and through uh god's word and god's wisdom like there's a reflection within that order and yet God's word and God's wisdom is not bound 
to creation. It is not, it, it is, it's in and it's not, right? Mm -hmm. You're all, we're, all, we're at this point, we're playing with the doctrine of divine ideas and exemplar causes and things like that. But that well, whole yeah. dialectic is there. You're, I mean, you're also, this is also the distinction between divine law in St. Thomas's sense and natural law. So divine, essentially divine positive law. So God's, God's wisdom, um, God's eternal law speaking and natural law, which is God's wisdom sort of embedded in us. Um, which, so we can kind of read from ourselves um, as well as reading from, uh, from his book. You know, we can read from the book of nature as well as from the book of scripture. And so like, there's one other part of this and I'm not really sure if there's, if I'm, so, okay. So first of all, the experience as well as, you know, recommending Love Grossman and Sophocles um, as, and um, Patrick Rothfuss as sort of good parallels to, to read in concert with this. I also really want to recommend Alistair's Bible studies because there's a way of, you, Alistair has a distinctive way of reading scripture that reminds me of Susanna Clark in this book. And I can't describe it any more than that because also we are probably getting to the end of this podcast. Um, but just trust me on this. Anyone who's listening and has not kind of uh, dug into Alistair's Bible studies, I would recommend them. Would you say it's deep exegesis? Kind of. <laughs> or weird, <laughs> weird. <laughs> the deep the deep magic of the, the you should have you should have called your study like the, the deep magic of the bible with alistair roberts <laughs> um no but it, it's true but that that kind of hewing in on the fact that the words that mm -hmm. are inspired and written and taken down have that have a have an originary and um rooted sense that there, there's there's intrinsic there's intrinsic dimensions to the image the images and the words picked up and inspired and written they're not just like extrinsic uh, like a like a self-contained sign system uh yeah. it, it 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 corresponds and correlates and draws on the world yeah. in that sense and uh, yeah i think i, I think for me think one of the things Bible about that way <laughs> one of the things about it is that poetry is one of the truest ways of speaking about the world. And once that clicks, I think a lot of what scripture is doing makes a lot more sense. It's not just decorative. It's not just fancy literary tricks. It's telling us something true about the world. And likewise with understanding the world around us, that the attentive poet who is attuned to the world can tell us something true about the resonance between things, the interpenetration of realities and the ways in which we are implicated as worlded creatures. And that, I think, is something we're very forgetful about within the modern world. Okay, one more thing. I, I think that, um, so there's this sense, uh, like, it's not just that the words of the Bible, as Alistair unpacks them, kind of have this same sense of embedded meaning. It's also that like the history, the bits of the Bible that are history that are describing things that happen, you can sort of see history itself as being like the similar stories or similar themes playing out in people's actions and mm -hmm. people's decisions and people's relationships. And I feel like there's something about um, 
you know, the Hebrew idea of, of history as having both a direction, but also a kind of spiralness to it. So like mm -hmm. we are going from creation towards, um, you know, towards the final judgment, towards the new heavens and the new earth. But like, as we go, there's a kind of like spiral shell that directionality of the spiral shell where you keep seeing the same patterns over and over again. Um, and that's a kind of like, that's in contrast to a purely cyclical view of the world, which you might get with a much more imminentist, like fully imminentist, panentheist, panentheistic and or pagan understanding where you're not actually mm -hmm. going somewhere. Or, or flat or a flat linear progress yeah, yeah, that is, yeah. is just going all, all straight forward and, and, and where there are no wrap no echoes it's all radical breaks it's all pure and, and 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 it fails to look back and see oh we're, we're just doing a, a different version of the same dance you know uh farther down the line um i'm amazed that, that we've got I, to this I, point without talking about the theme of progress in the book <laughs> well yeah i mean there's just so much but but that whole this is this is the thing about the the disenchantment versus enchantment discourse and all that is you know you have this sense that there's people have a sense of lack there's something off there's something and i go back and forth in how much i evaluate that i i i'm but this is my my, my kind of protestant skepticism about um our our need to re-enchant the world is not all enchantment's good uh not all of it what was what we've you know quote unquote was lost i mean the fairies are freaky um you know the elves are mercurial and they're 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 ambiguous characters. In you don't literature even refer to them. You don't, you don't just the good people. The good you don't people. Say <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't say think the fae. Don't invoke them. Um, but uh, but that whole element of like you know, there's the danger of the Baconian Ketterly, but also it's not. It's actually it's not good to try and return and become mm -hmm. just become Pyrenees in the house. Um, that that's actually not a fully human existence either um, to, to, to have no sense of history, no continuity, no. And so that I think sense of is, self. yeah, I, I don't, and I don't think Susanna Clark um, goes into that kind of pure, this pure enchantment nostalgia. I don't think her book yeah. does that. I think that's part of what she's playing with is that dialectic, um, which is so why it's so rich and it's only 250 pages. It's crazy what she does in 250 pages. Really of journal entries. If um, you have not read the book, then we're very disappointed in you for having listened to this point. Really but, <laughs> but you can redeem yourself somewhat by buying a copy of it and reading it now. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Susanna and Derek. It's been a great conversation. That was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God bless, and thank you for listening. <laughs>